faith, hope, inspiration, and edification. Welcome to the Edify Podcast with Billy Hallowell, a show that cuts through the cultural noise to explore the biggest headlines and issues of the day. Let's dive into today's show. Hey, what's going on? I'm Billy Hollowell, and welcome to the Edify Podcast. I am excited to dive into today's show today. Now, we do something at the start of every show, and that is to dive into some of the big headlines. What are the things that have happened in the past week that we should be paying attention to, looking at, maybe diving a little bit deeper on? And so I usually bring on another reporter at, at various outlets, Christian Post, Faithwire, and across the board. We love to talk to other people, hear the big headlines they're reporting on, they're dealing with. And so So today we're going to be bringing on somebody from the Christian Post. I'm joined today by Brandon Showalter. How you doing? Doing great. How are you doing? I am doing well. So I want to dive into some of the headlines today that you feel are really important over at Christian Post. And there are a number of stories that that pop out. The one that I, I was really shocked by was about the Hotel Rwanda, the subject of the Hotel Rwanda movie. What can you tell us about these terrorism charges that he's been arrested on? Yes, it's the real-life hero of the movie Hotel Rwanda, Paul Recessa Bagina, who was arrested this week on terrorism charges. Um, I think we're going to have to really wait and see how this all shakes out because of you know, I'm not certainly no expert on African politics, but uh, it is said, it is alleged that he was financing and funding, a, you know, a terrorist group, radical terrorist group um, uh, down near the southern border of Rwanda, which borders Burundi. Um, his son told CNN that he thinks this is all, uh, you know, this is not, this is not right. This is, um, these allegations are false and that, you know, having a thought in is a crime in some places in Rwanda. That's what he's saying. But this Recess Bagina guy, the Hotel Rwanda protagonist, uh, has long been a critic of the current president of Rwanda, Paul Kagame. And um, Kagame has been the president of Rwanda since 2000. Recess Bagina hasn't lived in the nation of Rwanda since 1996, um, after there was an assassination attempt that was not successful, obviously. And so through international cooperation, he was arrested on these charges. Um, For those of your listeners who may not know, Rwanda was ruled by the Belgians for many decades um, in the last century. Uh, The Belgian government has said that he was not, to the best of their knowledge, arrested in Belgium. But uh, yeah, it's going to be an interesting one to watch to see what happens, because he was regarded as an international human rights hero, President Bush gave him the highest honor um, that he could possible. And for for those of your listeners who haven't seen the movie Hotel Rwanda, Recess Bagina facilitated 1,200, approximately 1,200 people, you know, bribed the military to get them to safety in an otherwise bloody, bloody genocide, one of the worst that's ever happened in the last century. Well, that is a story to watch for sure. Wow. There's there's so many different elements to it, right? So and it's right. so complicated being, you know, being in the US, not knowing that history and not knowing the ins and the outs of it. But thank you for your for your work on that one. Um, there's another one that caught my eye, and this one involves Planned Parenthood. Uh, there are over 120 black leaders who have come out uh, to blast the systemic racism that they believe is within Planned Parenthood. So what's going on there? Well, um, as you know, among the black community, both Republican and Democrat, opposition to abortion is strong. You know, blacks are um, generally uh, 
more socially conservative. And so we've got Republicans and Democratic leaders alike and some pastors and sort of thought leaders in the black community who are arguing that Planned Parenthood, and this is this is a point that many pro-life advocates make, is a systemically racist organization in how you know, clinics are placed in predominantly minority neighborhoods. Uh, but I find it really interesting what has changed the dynamic of this conversation in particular is that in light of the resurging racial issues that are being revisited more, uh, more prominently in public discourse, even Planned Parenthood itself is admitting some of the you know, sordid legacy of their founder, Margaret Sanger, who was into the eugenics. And so this letter from these 120 black leaders comes at a time when people are really wrestling with that. Um, but that was just, now the national headquarters of Planned Parenthood didn't say anything specifically about Sanger, but the New York, greater New York branch recently did disavow her views. Um, and so it's going to be, it's gonna be an interesting conversation to see uh, continue, particularly as Planned Parenthood seems to be in at least somewhat ongoing turmoil because last year, people remember their president who'd only served for about eight months was ousted after disagreements emerged over her leadership of the organization. She wanted to reframe and repackage the group as more of a healthcare provider, whereas the board was insisting upon a more stronger political advocacy approach. And so they have an acting president now. Thus far, they haven't received any response from the national headquarters in, in Washington, D.C. Yeah, that's so interesting because everyone has always known about that history. And I think it was it was often shielded or not talked about, not discussed. And so, you know, here we are now, it's being talked about, it's being discussed, and um, they're acknowledging at least a local portion faction of Planned Parenthood is acknowledging that history. And, and I think it opens up, you know, a lot of questions about why they've chosen this timing. And I think in light of what's happening um, to deal with that, but there are going to be deeper questions that come out, especially among conservatives and those in the pro-life community who have long targeted the organization um, for these things. So that that is fascinating to me. Now, the third story that um, that you're bringing our way, it involves Pornhub and sex trafficking. What can you tell us about this one? Well, this is a really remarkable petition that that was launched um, earlier this year by Layla Milkelweight of Exodus Cry, which is a prostitution abolitionist anti-porn organization. Uh, Layla is a force of nature, and this porn um, this petition linked Pornhub, which is the largest porn hosting site in the world. Uh, to the facilitation of sex trafficking and child abuse because it's so easy to get uh, to, to get an account on Pornhub and upload this kind of awful, awful trash. Um, and they have profited off of this kind of exploitation. And so this this petition is launched and for, for lots of petitions get launched over things, but it's rare that you see this kind of success. And it just recently crossed the two million you know, signature mark. Uh, Terry Crews, the actor and who's the host of America's Got Talent, he recently, uh, you know, lent his voice in support of this, saying this should be defunded. And so we're seeing a reckoning with one of the worst websites out there. Uh, the profits of this thing are just huge, and its parent company, MindGeek, the protests have emerged in some places, gets 42 billion views per year. Um, that's average about 115 million a day. Um, you know, and as of Thursday afternoon, this this petition had amassed two million twenty six thousand eight hundred seventy seven supporters and it keeps growing. 
Well, you know, I appreciate you sharing these stories today. That's another important one. I think I think that's another website that pops up a lot when it comes to this discussion and people wanting to see there be accountability and investigations. And I appreciate you breaking down all three of these stories for us on the Edify podcast today. Thank you, Billy. Always good to join you. You're listening to the Edify Podcast Network. We'll be right back. This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app. This is the Edify Podcast Network. Welcome back. Hey, I'm Billy Hollowell, and welcome back to the Edify Podcast. We are going to be diving now in our next segment into an interview with John Cooper. If you don't know John, he is the lead singer of the Christian band Skillet. He's also an outspoken Christian, talks a lot about his faith, and a lot about the issues of the day. And right now, he's speaking about his experience living in Kenosha, Wisconsin. A lot of the unrest that we've seen in the headlines over the past few weeks has been unfolding in that area. And so we're going to hear a little bit from him about that experience about his reflections on where we are and where we need to go if we want to heal the current divide. So with no further ado, let's welcome him to the Edify podcast. Hey, John, how's it going today? I'm doing good. It's good to be talking to you nice and early. You guys have had, so you're in, you're in Kenosha, Wisconsin, right? And so the rest of the country has gotten, um, I think, a, a very good idea of where Kenosha is, what has been going on in Kenosha the last few weeks. And what what has life been like there for you guys over the past few weeks? Well, it is strange. You know, I never thought that anyone would ever hear Kenosha. <laughs> it's such a small place. So it's been kind of, um, you know, ironic in that sense, I guess you would say. But, you know, very strange. You never think, like you see it on TV. For instance, I've seen New York has been on TV for a long, long time, ever since March. And, uh, and, and you see these big cities and you... You say, yeah, that that won't happen here. And it, it, I think that that's the shock of it. Yes, this can happen here. And uh, it was very strange, especially the first four days. It was it was just it was just so weird and so unusual and heartbreaking to see what was happening and a little frightening. You know, we didn't have we didn't have enough um, police, just didn't have enough bodies. Um, but all of that has turned around. It's, it's peaceful now. You know, the. Uh, not to sound political, it's just the truth. The guard came in, the feds came in, and they they stuck to curfew. And after about five days, um, it's all gone, and we just ended curfew last night. So that's the good news. So now we're wow. kind of back to normal. Yeah, I mean, it's. I was thinking about your circumstance there, and in my, I'm in a small suburban town outside of New York City, right? And so in my town, there aren't a lot of cops. And I was thinking through this, and I'm like, if this were to happen here, it would be a panic because nobody knows what to do. You don't have enough law enforcement. Um, tell me a little bit about what Kenosha is normally like before all of this. What's the town like? Just take me through that because I think it helps us kind of understand sure. the context of where this happened. Well, I mean, what Kenosha's like, I mean, look, you know how this stuff is. I've been doing a ton of interviews and sometimes I finish my interviews and I'm second guessing everything I said, because you're going to make somebody mad. 
You know, I said on Fox News the other day, I said, this isn't a violent town. This is a safe place. People like each other. It's not a racist town. And I talked to somebody that said, there is racism here and, and you're a racist for not saying that. There's racism everywhere on planet Earth because people are sinful and we need Jesus really bad. <laughs> people are without Christ are sinful. There's racism everywhere on the planet. I'm from Memphis, Tennessee, which is quite a racist place. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was shot in Memphis. The, the, the economic disparity and destruction in Memphis is so bad. When I came to Kenosha, I felt like I was in not a racist town. You know, people like each other here. My, my in-laws have lived here their whole lives, and they've never once locked their doors. Still to this day, they don't lock their doors. It's just the kind of place it is. 100,000 people. And it was a melting pot. I mean, when my, my father-in-law was growing up here, he lived in the Italian neighborhood. And right next to that was the Polish neighborhood and then the German neighborhood. And But people are very intertwined here. Um, when I first moved here, unbeknownst to me, the house that we bought was in uh, the Spanish neighborhood. I didn't even know that. And I said to my wife, I was like, our neighbors always seem nice. They always smile at me, but they never actually speak back to me. I kept talking to them. And, and she's like, oh, they don't speak English. And I was like, well, I didn't even know that was a possibility. It was, I'd never seen that. But people here don't hate each other. It's a, just a nice place that is not dismissing the fact that, yes, there's going to be racism everywhere you go on the planet. That's a part of uh, the fact that we need Christ. So anyway, that's what it's like here. And, and I think that was the shock uh, of seeing this happen, knowing that it's probably not people from Kenosha doing the, the, the violence and the right, damage. Right, right. And we do know that for a fact. There are 175 people who have been arrested. Um, wow. 100 of them are from out of state. Not even from out of the city, out of state. So, in other words, when these things happen, people come in from everywhere. Absolutely. And they just want to do damage. And it ruins the message of good faith people that are protesting, that, that have something to say that they do not want to hurt the community. And it, it ruins that message. And I think that's a bummer. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. You know, people go out to protest, they exercise their right, and they're trying to bring attention to an issue. And then you have all these people come in, you have this violence breakout, and it becomes something completely other than what that protest was supposed to be about, right? About inequality and about all of those things. And it does seem like there's been this debate around are people condemning the violence enough, right? It has nothing to do with the cause of the protest. It has to do with the violence. Are people saying enough about that? How did you feel? Because you guys became very quickly a focal point in the country. Everyone's looking there. They're watching what's happening. Did you feel like leaders, and I'm not asking you to specifically name anybody or anything like that. I'm not trying to bait you into politics. I just mean in general, did you feel like there was enough of a push of not even just leaders, but people in general saying, this is not acceptable. We need to do something about this. Yeah. I mean, I felt like that in America for the last few months, you know, uh, and, you know, because I do speak out a lot about what I think about things. I've lost, to be honest with you, I've lost a few friends over it over the last few months. Because my point is that whether you protest or not, no matter who you vote for, no matter what, you know, what you believe, you cannot condone violence against innocent people. 
And I think yeah. it comes down to the ideology of, are those people actually innocent? Maybe they're not innocent because of the color of their skin or because of their, um, you know, bracket of wealth or whatever that may be. Even to the point where you've had white people do violence against black cops. Yeah. E even that, because, well, yeah, but they're part of those, those black cops are part of a system. And what I've said to my friend, I, I have friends who protest, a friend who protested here in Kenosha. And I say, hey, that is your right. And I, I that's, I'm totally fine for the protest. It's an American right, you know, it's even a part of our heritage. But you have to say the violence is bad. And when somebody comes out like me and says, I don't like the violence, then you get called a bigot or you get called a whatever. And it has um, nothing to do with that. It's about not it's about not wanting violence in our communities. And I have heard, to be honest with you, you know, and, and I, I've been very careful of how I've talked about this, but I've heard a lot of people who I know and love who have said things like, well, when things happen and there's inequality, you know, you get to a point where this is what, what happens. Um, and I want to qualify again that a lot of the people I'm seeing do violence are not, are actually not, Black people or African American, there there are groups of of white people who oh, are out there doing a lot of this, right? And so we've seen this, yeah. and so it's not that, but it's not a race thing. It's about the violence itself. That I think we need to say, well, there's no point at which violence on any side of any issue is okay, right? And so, you know, it's I think it's important we say that, but also, and I'd love to get your take on this. The gospel calls us obviously to 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 justice and to all of those things. Um, but it also calls us to change individually, right? When we talk about heart change, there's a lot of discussion about changing the system. And if there are problems with the system, it needs to be changed. But how do you change it? Well, you have to change people. And that's what it's really about. And so I feel like we sometimes lose that discussion in the midst of all of this. And I don't know how to reclaim that. I don't know how you feel about that, but I, I, throw think, that. I think you're pointing out a lot of great things. Um, I would agree as somebody who I follow this up a lot because I enjoy it. I would absolutely agree. You're talking about a lot of white people that uh, are, are anarchists, to be honest. They just want to see bad stuff happen. And that's what a lot of the violence is here. Um, I agree we should speak out against the violence. I, I, I've been really alarmed at how few Christian leaders will come out and say something against the violence because they know if they do, then they will be they will be seen as not supporting the, you know, the, the protest and, and, and maybe the justice that needs to happen. I think that that's alarming. What's more alarming to me is the way that a lot of Christian pastors are beginning to change theology in order to support a narrative. I've mm. heard some crazy things recently um, that, that is really turning the gospel. See, as what, what you just said is that that Jesus wants to change hearts, individual hearts, in order to give us maybe they don't look like us or that have treated us bad or whatever that may be to do that on an individual basis. Now I'm beginning to see a lot of preachers who are beginning to say that really the reason that Jesus died was to save the oppressed. And, and it's not really about individuals, it's about the oppressed of a culture and so now we're changing to where the mediator will no longer be Jesus. The mediator will be minority culture or poor culture or whatever that, that group of people is. That's what I'm really concerned about because people, I think, with good hearts, they want to see justice. They want people to know they love them, and I applaud them for that. 
But once you have changed the gospel into an issue that it's not about individuals anymore, individuals being changed through the atonement of Jesus Christ for each one of us, but into identity politics of groups of people. And now this group has to come to the mediation of another group in order to come to Christ. That's pretty scary stuff. And that's not actually what the gospel is. And it will actually end with less unity in the body of Christ. It will end in more chaos because it divides people. When what Jesus says is, hey, if you're in Christ, there is no Jew, there is no Greek, there's no slave, there's no free, no rich, no poor. You're actually one pe. I've made you one people in covenant supernaturally. That work is already done. So I think that that is a stronger message than what we're seeing on that new social yeah. justice warrior Christian side. I, I just feel like we're missing, like I'm, I'm watching these discussions unfold and I'm looking at, I'm like, we're, we're not talking about the fact that everybody, every individual across the board, all the groups you just mentioned, all of us, we're all human beings and we all need to be, you know, we all need God's grace. We need to accept, if, if we want to be perfected under God, we accept Christ, we live a lifestyle. It's not just saying the prayer, it's living that lifestyle forever, right? From, from that moment on. And being a Christian, that's what changes you, right? Jesus is what changes us. And I just, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, well, are we assuming that we, the people who have created all of these problems with our sin, are somehow now suddenly going to be the ones who fix this, this massive system? I mean, what is the system? And I get it. I get that there are, so I'm not denying that there aren't problems in the system. I think it's fine. We need to look at that. But we make the system up. We're the ones who have created it, the human right. beings who need to be redeemed. So it's just like, I've struggled with that in, in every one of these conversations, not just the current one, but I think we put a lot of faith in something that we assume is this, it's just in, in existence out there, this system. Okay, well, got to change ourselves. We've, we've got to change our hearts to change the system. And so I'm glad to hear that things are calmer there. I think that is important. Was there a lot of fear, you know, while this was going on? Just take me through the emotions of it, because I can't imagine, you know, hearing the sounds and, and being there during it. What was that like for you guys? Yeah. You know, what was really scary was that just so people get an idea, I live about three, four streets away from where all the buildings were being burned. And the, the people that ended up being shot and killed live about five streets from me. From my street, you can see things on fire. Okay. And we already did not have enough police for that. What was really scary was we began to get Facebook messages or texts from friends of friends of friends who lived out of state. And they were saying, if you know anybody that lives in Kenosha, pass these messages along. And they were, they were messages from people in St. Louis, Minneapolis, Chicago, of people saying, hey, we're getting a group together to go to Kenosha. We're going to go and we are going to go into these neighborhoods. We're going to mess stuff up. My neighborhood was one of the neighborhoods they're coming to. I'm three streets away from the action. At the same time, we already didn't have enough police. And our governor was, was saying, no, we don't want any federal help. So people are wondering, what is that going to mean for us? What's that going to mean for my kids? Uh, you know, burning down a neighborhood is one thing. Burning down my house with my kids in it is a whole nother thing. There is a lot of fear there and a lot of just a lot of, you know, that feeling, it feels like that everyone has lost their minds. It's that, yeah. it's that feeling. And it's like, this is not going to help. This is going to hurt the conversation. 
and we need people to, we need Christian leaders that, that come out and say, Hey, uh, we, we want to march with you. We believe in what you're saying, but we do not believe in the violence and stand against it. And frankly, we just didn't have enough of that. So it was a bit of, of a fearful time. And, and for me, I, I just, uh, I just want to protect my family, but keep loving people. Jesus, how can you use me in a relationship? It's it, uh, you know, they can help me. I can help them. We can be the body of Christ together, but we have to stand up against lawlessness. Lawlessness is just not good. I've been really amazed at how many Christians are like, we got to have justice. And they're willing to sacrifice lawlessness for their perceptions of justice, which is just so bizarre. I, I, I can't even wrap my head around the theology of that. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think a lot of it is well-intentioned and then you mix it yeah. with what's been happening in culture, which is relativism. I mean, we just, you look at people in general and it's like, everybody's like, well, you know, whoever wants to do whatever they want to do that, that whatever works for them. And that has like permeated everything. And so I guess in some ways, even though I find it shocking, it also doesn't shock me that we excuse away illegal behavior sometimes even, right? Because we're just like, well, you know, and just and and I feel like we're called to truth. And so truth is that when something is wrong or violent or criminal, that you don't justify it, right? Yeah. And that doesn't mean you don't hear people out and you don't try to understand the perspectives behind what might lead somebody to a crossroads of deciding to take that action. Yeah. But that you don't justify that action, right? I mean, yeah, seems like I, common sense. I hear you. I agree with you. And I agree with everything you just said. And I think relativism is at a heart of it. And you know, this, I always say things in interviews that get me in trouble, but a lot of this really, welcome. Is, <laughs> a lot of this is to do honestly with what I believe is relativistic social justice message that is actually, doesn't make any sense. And, and when you, when I talk to Christian people who believe in like what, you, what they should believe in is, is that as a Christian man, I should be responsible for the things I do. But when you meet Christians that, that believe in uh, extreme versions of restorative justice that say, well, it depends if you've been abused somehow, or if you've been this somehow, then you're not actually responsible for that thing. That is the reason you have Christians saying it's okay for, for a mob of people to burn down a neighborhood because that mob of people, there are disparities within their social identity groups and yada, yada, yada. So therefore, it, if there's not going to be justice, you can't expect to not get burned down. The irony of the whole thing being, statistically, it's not actually minority groups burning it down. It's white kids that went to college. And that that is the, the funny thing is that, that that's not who's burning the place down anyway. But when you get Christians that, that really don't understand what the Bible talks about in terms of God's idea of justice, of right and wrong, of what sin really is, then you get all these relative ideas of like, it just seems like to me that God loves people and so fill in the blank. And that's not really the way the word of God works. So finding that balance of loving people and listening, but also going, hey, I'm sorry, but I have to hold a standard of, of, of what lawlessness is and what actual justice is, not your idea of justice, but actual justice. That's really tough to do in 2020. I mean, I think we're all we're all tiptoeing through it and trying to be serve God and glorify God and love people the best we can. And we all make mistakes. I know I do. 
Yeah, it's it's so hard. It's so hard. And I think, you know, it's a it's a journey for all of us. And I think, you know, we, we got to be praying for our country, praying for our leaders, praying for Biden and Trump. Who knows who's yes. going to be president? Right. Like at the end of the day, we're so siloed in our own groups ideologically in every way, as we're seeing. And I just I think we've got to step outside of that and, and just be praying for this country. I'm glad you guys are in a better position. Now, I have to ask you before we go. Um, skillet wise, what do you guys work? Like what's going on? Like total transition away from that into like what you guys, what you guys are doing right now. All right. Lots of things in one week, skillet releases our deluxe version of our newest album. And it is called victorious. The aftermath, the aftermath felt like an appropriate name for this project because 2020 has been hard. We've all been locked up for months. We have, uh, all the protesting going on. We've had some terrible things happen in our country. A lot to pray for. And the Aftermath has brand new material on it. Three brand new songs. It has remixes. It's it's really, really cool. So that comes out in a week. Also coming out is our second Skillet graphic novel. Um, I don't know if people know. We have a graphic novel called Eden. And that is spelled just like Eden in the Bible. E-D-E-N. And it's um, it's cool. Science fiction. It's got a lot of religious uh, overtones to it, um, but it's a it's a really cool book, and it's very I think pertinent to the times we're going in. So the second Eden Two comes out here in the next few weeks as well. So that's what Skillet is up to. Hopefully, going to be playing a few concerts next month. Working on that, some of the drive-in concerts where people can be socially distanced. Be oh, that's cool. And all that. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to ask, how does that work? But you just answered it. You have people driving. I love that idea of a drive-in. I was hearing like Walmart, some Walmart locations around the country were doing like movie drive-ins in their parking lot. Like, I was, oh. That's a really good idea, right? So yeah. for concerts, I mean, you guys have to get back at some point to being able to do what you do, right? So I hope so. That's, right. that's what we're all hoping for. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody in the nation and world is hoping that we can all get back to doing what we do, you know? Get the kids back to school, get life back going. Yeah, that's that's the thing. Well, listen, I so appreciate you coming on. I want to have you back again soon. And you have a podcast too, don't you? I do. It is called Cooper Stuff Podcast. Go to iTunes or Spotify, YouTube, Cooper Stuff Podcast. Also Facebook, John L. Cooper Stuff. And I talk about culture, politics. Stuff. Stuff, you know, <laughs> but through a Christian worldview, of course. And uh, and that's that's kind of what I what I did. I love it. Well, thanks so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, great to chat with you. Thank you, brother. Lots of interesting conversation there. That was John Cooper from Skillet. Check out the band's music. Check out the projects they're working on. He mentioned a couple of them during that interview. And make sure you tune in next week for another episode of Edify with Billy Hollowell. Head over to Apple. Give us a review. Give us a rating. And let us know what you're thinking about the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Edify podcast. For more transformational and faith-inspiring podcasts, head over to edify.app, where you can stream thousands of Christian shows right now. And for convenience on the go, download the Edify podcast app today from the Apple and Google Play stores and at edify.app.